Twas the third Sunday of Advent, the pink candle was lit. The message was joyful and good news to wit. Repent and be baptized. And so here we sit. That's right, it's the third Sunday of Advent. This is the Sunday when we see the light creeping over the horizon, the coming of the sun, the breaking of the dawn, the rising of the morning star, but still only creeping, coming, breaking, rising. There's still some waiting to be done. There's still some time left, time for getting things in order, time for dreaming, for imagining, time to get ready for the great Advent. On this third Sunday, we take a bit of a breather from the slow walk toward the birth of Jesus, and the pink candle signals that break, that breather. While on the previous two Sundays of Advent, we were called to contemplate the end of things, the day of our redemption, a day identified by all the shaking and quaking an apocalyptic imagination can conjure. On this Sunday, we stop a moment, catch our collective breath, and say to each other quietly but joyfully, that what we, hear, what we are awaiting is just around the corner and is altogether wonderful. We pause, as it were, in order to gear up for the final period of waiting, the taking of a big breath before plunging back into the water that cleanses us and makes us ready for the Christ. And that water is very much on our minds, even in the midst of this little pink respite, for water is on either side of this in-between time, this third Sunday of Advent. There's the word from Isaiah telling his people of the day when with joy they will draw water from the wells of salvation. A lovely word that is, all surrounded by other promises. Promises of God's presence, of God's forgiveness, God's strength, God's love, and God's salvation. A veritable cornucopia of good news set before the people caught up in their own in-between time. The time between exile and restoration, between the nightmare and the dream, sorrow and the joy. Look what's coming, Isaiah says, and rejoice. Then on the other side, there is the Jordan River, and beside it stands our old friend John, ragged and sunburned, weather-beaten, and all aflame with the Holy Spirit. John stands by the river and calls the people to repent, and he does it gently, lovingly in seeker-friendly language drawn straight from the Willow Creek Handbook. You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, every tree, Therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let us pray. Oh, that John. He always did have a way with the crowd. Oh, that John. He always did have a way with the crowd because rather than being turned off or put off or chased off by his language, the people ask him what they need to do what that fruit worthy of repentance looks like and tastes like and smells like. And so John tells them what the prophets had told them all along. Care for the poor, tend to the vulnerable, feed the hungry, and start acting like God's people. 
John's message so abrasive to our domesticated ears, John's message gets even the Wall Street tycoons, the tax collectors, the collaborators, those most cozy with the empire. John's message touched even their cold, gilded hearts. What should we do? Well, stop cheating. Then the soldiers, Gentiles for heaven's sake, Roman soldiers asked him what they should do. What's a good Gentile military man to do that would be worthy of repentance? Well, stop cheating the poor, taking advantage of the weak, the vulnerable, and stop lying while you're at it. I mean, no wonder folks started to wonder if John were the Messiah. Any smooth-talking evangelist can get regular folks to repent, but tax collectors, soldiers, people who'd long since had their hearts removed for the sake of their work, I mean, nobody can get these people worried about their eternal souls except maybe the Messiah. But no, John tells them, it's not me. All I have to offer you is water, a cleansing and preparation for God's coming. I'm the one preparing the way. But someone is coming who will offer you more, someone so much greater than I am, so great that I'm not even fit to bend down and untie his sandals. He's coming and bringing another baptism, a baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire, and his coming is going to tear things apart and break things up and turn everything upside down so that at the end only the righteous will be left to witness it. And as for the unrighteous, well, let's just say things will get a little hot for a time, at least long enough to refine, to cleanse, to remove all the stuff that made them unrighteous to begin with. And so here we are in this in-between time, the third Sunday of Advent, with water on either side of us, the well of salvation, the baptism of repentance and preparation, neither here nor there, but maybe both places at once. From this in-between place, we survey the land, and we can see that those ancient promises still have weight. In fact, we see them come to pass by the Jordan, even as we know that what happens there points us even further onward and upward. John's voice reminds us that we're not there yet. For all we've heard and all we've seen, there's still further to go. Our Advent journey is not ended. But what a great spot we've picked to catch our breath. Water and beauty and promises all around us. It's enough to make even the most stoic among us get a little bit giddy. Enough to cause even the most jaded among us to consider shouting hallelujah and getting a little happy. At least for a while. Speaking of water. Well, it was the third Sunday of Advent. The pink candle was burning. The children were restless. The adults, they were yearning for something or someone to come set them free, to come set them reeling, to come hear their plea, to come with a whisper, a shout, or a cry, but to come, to come visit, to come stay for a while bringing love and compassion like gifts neath a tree, bringing hope and salvation so that we might all be exactly, exactly what we're meant to be. Exactly, exactly what we're meant to be. Well, according to the liturgical types, um, this third Sunday of Advent is all about looking beyond the days and miles still ahead of us and searching for a glimpse of light at the end of the journey. 
these long walks or this waiting, well, they can grow wearisome after all. But they are, and I'd be the first to admit, they are absolutely essential to our faith, particularly, I think, in this time in Western history when waiting is for losers, those with power, those with cash, those with clout, while they just march right to the head of the proverbial line. They shop online and select express delivery, never mind the cost, and they watch cable on demand, a most appropriate bit of lingo to describe our culture. Cable on demand. Pretty well says it all, doesn't it? The Christmas lights go up soon after Halloween. The music begins to play. The trees get tied under the roofs of cars. The stockings get hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon will be there. All the Who's in Whoville begin spinning their wild and weird decorations while the Grinch stands on top of the mountain and conspires against them. Dear Linus recites Luke. And Rudolph's friends learn for the millionth time and finally, finally let him play those reindeer games. Meanwhile, back in the church, there's this wearisome call to wait, to be still, to reflect, to lift up our heads and look for signs in the heavens, to believe against all the evidence that our redemption really is drawing near, to engage in the same act of prayerful imagination year after year after year after year after year to slow down, to wait. We gather together and we mark the time with candles. <laughs> candles. We figuratively turn the lights down low. We light, let our eyes adjust to the darkness and our hearts slow down and enter for just a moment a, little, a posture that's a little bit more faithful than the one we normally assume. We step away from our culture in which we are but exiles, the empire in which we are but strangers, the world in which we live but are never really at home. We sit and we wait. We engage in the spiritual discipline of holy anticipation, forgetting all the lists, the calls, the demands, the frenzy, for the sake of a few moments of peace, of slow time, Time marked not by the number of shopping days or presents still to purchase or the hours in a day, but by some candles and the beating of God's own heart. A different rhythm altogether than the one we've grown accustomed to calling normal. And we welcome it for a little while. Then we get restless and we start checking our watches and remembering our lists. We start figuring the angles again, seeking the quickest and most efficient way through. Point A to point B ought to be a straight line, right? We grow tired of waiting, in other words. We've fallen out of practice. We start tapping our feet or our fingers. We grow tired of the sense of disconnect, the, the disconnect between what is happening in the world all around us and what we're trying to do in here. And out there seems increasingly real and and in here seems increasingly flimsy, childish, propped up. The wispy imaginings of someone that we used to know. Well, this may sound like a new problem, but restlessness is nothing new. Um, our conditions may have changed, our thresholds may be thinner, our patients more easily tested, but restlessness has been around for a mighty long time. Just ask Adam and Eve, who got bored in the Garden of Eden and looked elsewhere for something new and exciting to hold their interest. 
Restlessness is as old as the hills and then some. And so the wisdom of our ancestors, who decided that it's a good thing to stop, even in our Advent journey, to take a pause, to take a breath, to check out how far we've come and how far we've got to go, and to give thanks for what we know lies ahead before we pick up our bags again and move off. And so in this otherwise somber, regal circle of purple and white, there sits this silly little pink candle. In some places it's a blue candle, but the point is the same. The journey's not easy. The waiting is hard. So take a break. Cool your heels. Let your restless hearts rejoice. See what wonders came before. See what wonders lie ahead. Look to the east. Here comes the sun. Shout hallelujah. Come on, get happy. Then pick up and finish the journey. Finish the waiting. Twas the third Sunday of Advent, and I wrote a bad poem about shining pink candles and our long journey home. I have no pretension, no hope in my heart that this silly old poem will seem anything like art. But that's not the point, not the goal, not the plan. Instead, it's to say in this poem that won't scan that here on this Sunday when pink candles burn, we can stop and recall, we can rest, we can learn that the one we're awaiting is coming for sure. And our hesitating hearts, even they can endure right through to the end if we stop and rejoice, if we look out there yonder and in one great and glad voice we all sing hallelujah and settle again back into our waiting, our walking, our call. And trust, and trust that from here to that old manger stall will take no time, no, no time, no, no time at all. And so here we are on this third Sunday of Advent. Soon the candles will be extinguished. One more week of waiting will have passed. The sweet, silly pink candle, too, will go out. Our breather will be over. Once again, we'll begin our Advent waiting with all the restless hope our hearts can muster, like children trying to fall asleep to make the night go faster, but straining their ears for sounds on the roof overhead. That slow but ever so faithful Advent posture of waiting, pretending that what has already happened has not happened yet, that the Christ we proclaim every Sunday, every day of the year is still to come, imagining ourselves back in time, in a place where young girls see visions of angels and offer themselves to God's will in ways that leave us speechless, and seeing in all of it every story, every member, every memory, every prayer, and every song, seeing in every last bit of it signs of our own salvation. Like those in exile in a foreign and strange land, we hear the promise that God is coming to save, and we hear that God's intention toward us is nothing less than redemption, that the God we thought had finally had enough of us is still faithful, still loving, and still willing to forgive and restore and heal and save us. In our own places of exile, we hear such things, and we have no choice but to shout, Hallelujah, God is coming. And like those gathered along that riverbank so long ago, listening to some wild-eyed prophet shout out our condemnation and our hope, we look around us and we wonder, are we ready? Are we ready for what is coming? Are we ready for God's next move? 
Are we ready to receive the one sent by God to dwell among us? Are we ready? God is coming. Are we ready? And so we prepare ourselves. We repent. We lift up our heads. We shout hallelujah. Because God is coming. And our salvation is at hand. We know there's more waiting to come. We know that the journey is not done. We know that Christ is still to come. We know our salvation, though assured, is not yet fully known. We know, in other words, that we've got some way to go. But on this third Sunday of Advent, I pray that we've taken stock, looked around, patched up our walking shoes and our weary hearts, lit the pink candle, and dared to laugh out loud and wonder at it all. Look how far God has brought us. And see just over that horizon, look where God is taking us. Shout hallelujah. Come on, get happy. Our redemption draws near. So catch your breath. Let's go.